One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Larry says yes. from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and I will offer the prayer tonight. Lord, we love you. We seek you and need you. We pray your spirit will be with us to discern truth from error. And uh, we just pray that you will guide us, not me, not men, not religion, just you, Lord. And we pray that we'll have the faith to look at you and trust in you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, how about a moment from the wood? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Okay, one of the great, most amazing claims of the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came and he saved the world while it was still yet in sin that he did the work, he lived the perfect life, and all believers have to do is receive him, his finished work, by faith. It's a wonderful message. Ostensibly, 
it's supposed to be free uh, to those who trust in the message, and it's supposed to free us from fear and sin and death, ostensibly, but interestingly enough, we know, both from Jesus and his apostles, that fear creeps in. Jesus was definitely against fear. He spoke against it. Fear stands in opposition to faith. And fear stands in opposition to love. Did you know that? Let me give you a couple passages. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Very important passage. And listen to what John says in 1 John 4.18. Ready? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Unfortunately, there are a number of ways and means that religions and religious people keep believers, probably meaning well, but they keep believers in this antithesis to faith and love, which is fear. Some of them use God to scare the heck out of us. And they say that God is angry. Still, he's still angry. They say that Jesus is conditional. That his love and his sacrifice is conditional. They say that the Holy Spirit will abandon you. That is a fearful situation to go and believe that if you don't do it right, the Holy Spirit will abandon you, Jesus' love is conditional, and God is super angry. Then another thing they do is they use church to scare the heck out of you. And what churches sometimes do, sometimes, is they say, you better join us. You better do what we tell you to do. You better believe like we tell you to believe exactly how we tell you to do it. And if you don't go along with that, we might even question if you are saved. Now, if, you are, if your salvation is being questioned, that puts a lot of fear, doesn't it? And then they use sin. And they say, if you do this sin, there's no forgiveness, or God won't love you, or you're going to hell, which we're going to cover in a second. And they say, or they say that this sin is not allowed while at the same time allowing their own sin to exist. So sin is used by people and religions and churches to get you to fear. And then there is my favorite authority, and that is if you don't listen to me, if you don't do what I say as your pastor, as your bishop, as your pope, as your priest, if you don't, then, there's always an if and then. And authority is you better comply because listening to me is listening to God. Don't listen to me. You're not listening to God and you're in trouble. So again, fear is brought in with authority and sin and God. And then there's the Bible. And the Bible, well, they'll say, you better read it. You better read it. Don't skip a day. See, all this is forms of legalism. If you don't, you know, if you have the spirit, 
then you'll read the Bible according to the Spirit and you don't have to have the burden. But when people start using it as a tool to beat you over the head with, you start to fear I'm not reading the Bible enough. Then they say you better live it exactly, taking it completely out of context. And then they say you should probably be memorizing. Have you ever had that one thrown at you? You know, good Christians memorize. I know a guy who he could cite the whole book of Isaiah verbatim. Well, you know, the scribes knew the word like crazy too, but they didn't know the Messiah. So, you know, or we use the Bible to beat each other up. All of it producing fear, which produces, or producing alienation, which produces fear, right? And then there is, of course, oh, well, let's just talk about doctrine really quick. You know, uh, you better have it right. Because if your doctrine is wrong on the least bit, you know, 1% false, you're going to hell. Or you're in trouble. You better fear. You better get your doctrine right. Well, you know, I used to believe most of this stuff. I used to try to follow most of this stuff until I realized it's all impossible. It's virtually impossible to have your doctrine right. How do you know? We've used the example before. Just take water baptism. And let's go out and talk to a million Christians of different denominations. And let's ask them about water baptism. And you're going to find 500,000 different views almost. Or 100,000. But you're going to find different views just on water baptism. So if the doctrine has to be 100% right, we're in trouble. Because everybody has problems in their doctrinal views. And then there's hell. It is forever. And there's no getting out. No getting out. It's a literal burning of your flesh. And God likes it. You better not. You better not. You better not. You better not. This is real. This is burning. And it goes in opposition to what Paul said. And it goes in opposition to what John said. Where there is fear, there cannot be love. And yet, we, we continue to go on. Let me just tell you, we have the Holy Spirit. I'm talking to believers here. I'm not talking about non-believers. God has written His laws upon our hearts and our minds. These things will bring fear, and that works in opposition to what He wants to produce in you, and that is love. The, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And so fear is in opposition to faith and in opposition to love. And so these things ought to be obsolete from our language as Christians. There are things that we can, sure we can talk about sin. There's a re, sin's a reality. And we can talk about God and we can talk about the Bible and church and doctrine. We can talk, but we don't need to use them as ways to scare the living uh, heck out of each other and... Uh, because it works in opposition of what God ultimately wants to bring out in us. All right, let me open up tonight with a brief email from Chris in San Antonio, Texas. It says, Sean, I have to admit I cringed when you said that Jesus had to be redeemed, born again. I am willing to hear what you have to say on the matter, but my first reaction is that since he was without sin, I can't imagine how in the world he would ever need redemption. I am a preterist, 
but I don't see how these issues are necessarily related. And then he says, may God continue to bless your ministry. I really love this comment, Chris. And uh, I cringe too when I, when I brought up the topic. It's a tough one to say even the way we were brought up and how we think. So let me, uh, last week we talked about Christ. And we said that since he was a man and Jesus said, no man will see the kingdom of heaven unless they have been born from above, born again, regenerated. I asked the question, was Jesus? And if he was, when and where was Christ Jesus born from above? Now just remember that phrase, how we use it, born from above or regenerated. Remember that phrase, regenerated. Understanding this is hugely important to understanding more about him and his mission and makeup and more about regeneration in general, which we're going to get to next week. So most in the faith, Christian faith, maintain that there is no reason, like Chris, for Jesus to have been spiritually regenerated since he was God in the flesh from the start. Others maintain, there are Christians who maintain, that he actually was born from above at his water baptism when the Holy Spirit fell as a dove, like a dove, upon him and God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There are Christians who believe that Jesus was born from above at that moment. And, you know, uh, I think we can say that at his water baptism with the descent of the Holy Spirit, he at least was anointed for his ministry, for his time that was about to begin at that time. And God's voice was saying, hey, since his birth to this time, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it was his approval of the life his son had lived up to that point in time. I don't know that that's true, but that could be something we could suggest. I actually believe both these positions have merit. I believe Jesus was born without sin and didn't need regeneration. I accept that. And, but I, and I also believe that there was anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. But I think both of those views are incomplete. So, and complexity can be so frightening uh, as a means to get through it or past it. Most of us will accept simplified explanations as a means to just save time and feel secure and go back into the, the secure state so we don't have to, to think. But we are talking about the very eternal God and his word becoming flesh, becoming human, living by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, suffering an incomprehensible death, uh, rising up out of the grave three days later. And then as a man, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, as a man entering into heaven after living on this earth, this was unheard of. This had never happened before in the annals of you know, biblical history. They always went to Sheol. They went to some other place, paradise or prison, but they didn't go directly to the right hand of the Father. So this is an unheard of concept that we're talking about what had to happen. So to the question, was the man Jesus born again? And is there biblical precedence that says he was? I would say there is, and I'm going to prove it tonight. When was he regenerated? When he was resurrected. And I'm going to use scripture to show you. Our brother Don Preston says there's an important biblical concept relative to Jesus and that he, and that is he had two births. I've, I never heard this until I started reading uh, his insights on it. 
Jesus was born twice. He was born physically, and then he was regenerated spiritually. I'll get to it. Both births are relative to specific covenant worlds, okay? The first covenant world, and I'm going to use this side of my person to explain it, we're going to call the Jewish covenant world, okay? And the second covenant world, we're going to call the covenant world of heaven. Not of the Gentiles, of heaven. Okay, this one, earthly. This one, heavenly. Got it? He was not born into the second covenant world of Gentiles that exists on this earth. He was born into this earth on this side, into the Jewish covenant world, and the second covenant world exists in heaven, not on earth. Let's talk about this first birth. According to Matthew and Luke, Jesus was born most assuredly of a virgin, but there are certain limitations inherent to this first birth, and these limitations are foundational to understanding who Christ Jesus was as the Messiah. Stay with me. The uniqueness of his first birth to the Jews needs to be understood from the biblical framework. And that's almost all of the Bible speaks to this, all right? Remember, remember, I'm going to say it about three times tonight. Jesus was born into the old covenant world, and it was the old covenant world of Judah when he was born. Judah and Benjamin. It was not the old covenant world of Israel. Understand that. He was born into Judah and Benjamin. How can we say that? Because those were the only two tribes that hadn't been scattered when Jesus was born. That's who Jerusalem essentially consisted of. What happened to the other tribes that were called Israel? Judah was not Israel. He, in other words, in the first century when Jesus was born, Israel did not have a covenant world at that time. Israel had been divorced by God, read Jeremiah chapter 3, and it tells you how God wrote Israel a bill of divorcement, and there was a scattering of Israel at that time. So the only part of the house of Israel that remained was Judah and Benjamin at that time, okay? All but them have been scattered before Jesus was born and began his ministry in Judah, Judea, Judah. That's why it was called Judea in all probability, at least that's what I've been told. Of course, he was born of a woman, born under the law, the law, part of this covenant world, Galatians 4, 4. And he appeared in the last days, the last days of this old covenant world, okay? And he did not minister to the Gentiles. He didn't minister to the rest of the world. He was sent to, quote, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the lost sheep, again, of the house of Judah and Benjamin. Of course, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says this. He came unto his own. That's who he came to. And his own was literally, what was it literally? His own, the tribe of Judah. He didn't even seem to have traveled outside of Judea much. There was a visit to Samaria. There was the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a few spotty visits, but biblically speaking, in Jesus' life, he stuck with these guys in that area, very small area relative to the rest of the cosmos. We often overlook this very limited application of Jesus' first birth, but we can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus, as Romans 15.8 says, was a minister of the circumcision. That's these guys, okay? 
for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. He was a minister of the circumcision, first birth. That's how you understand when you read that passage. During his personal earthly physical ministry, Jesus sent his disciples, remember, out on limited commissions. And he emphatically instructed them and he said, quote, Do not go along the road of the Gentiles. Do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but journey rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those sheep who were lost at that time. And as you journey, proclaim and say, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus instructed his disciples to limit their travels, right, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel who were scattered and swallowed up among the Gentile world. Salvation, Jesus said in John 4, 22, is of the Jews. That's what he said, okay? We read all the old, we read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, up to chapter 10, and we say, oh, look at, we read this, look what he said, it's to us, to us. It wasn't to us. Everything he said was to them there at that time for them to understand and perceive. Salvation is of the Jews, meaning salvation to the world. The rest of the world would only come once this first ministry was actually completed, okay? And he fulfilled all the law and the prophets, of which we have nothing to do. We didn't even have a prophet. We didn't know what the law was as a bunch of Gentiles. But he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And guess what? His own rejected him, all right? Therefore, Jesus' first birth was limited in regard to the world into which he was born the Old Covenant world of Judah. Got all that? Having been born into the Old Covenant world, there were restrictions. Listen carefully. According to Zechariah 6, 12, 13, a promise was made, a prophetic promise, that the Messiah was to be a king and a priest on his throne. Okay? Now, when we read the Old Testament today, we try to take it and assign it to a future time. All of this is going to be fulfilled later when we read these, these things. Let me tell you something. That, that is true. But the future time is heavenly. This is the heavenly side. And so when we start reading about the prophecies of the Messiah, if they weren't fulfilled here on earth, then they have to be fulfilled there in heaven, not here on earth. Okay? That's where futurists and dispensationalists say, oh no, he didn't fulfill it here when he was here in the flesh. So he's going to come back and fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies about him. No, no, no. All of those have been fulfilled in heaven spiritually by Christ Jesus. Let me prove it to you. According to Zechariah, the Messiah is to be a king and a priest on his throne. But Hebrews 7.14 tells us that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. How would Jesus be the Messiah, a king and a priest, if he was from the tribe of Judah? This means from the, Judah, from the tribe of Judah, Jesus could never, ever be a physical on earth in the flesh priest to fulfill Zechariah. It wasn't going to happen here. Never. Okay? When Jesus was alive, he couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies as the high priest. He was of the wrong tribe, right? So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8.5 says, If he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Okay? Seeing that the priests that offer gifts are according to the law. 
So the writer of Hebrews says, if he's on earth, he would not be a priest. So we know that his priestly duties are done somewhere else. We know he enters into the Holy of Holies of God in another place, not here. We know that he reigns from another throne, not here. Because all of those prophecies are for him at a different time after his second birth. First birth, physical. Okay? So, in other words, Jesus' earthly ministry, was, which was an extension of his first birth, prohibited him from fulfilling the prophecies of priestly function uh, as a Messiah, as Zechariah promised. Because his fleshly birth placed him outside of the sanction of the old covenant in regard to priesthood. So this fact has profound implications for the millennialist and the futurist and the dispensationalist view, which insists that Jesus came to be a king, but they killed him. And so uh, he came to fulfill Zechariah, be a king and a priest, but they killed him. And therefore, he could, even if they hadn't killed him, he never would have been a king and a priest. Because he couldn't fulfill that according to the law. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, he should not be a priest if he was here on earth. You get that? So again, Israel's law forbade the Messiah from being a priest because the Messiah was from Judah. Isaiah 1, 11 tells us that clearly. How futurists believe Jesus would have been a king on the earth if they hadn't killed him, or yet will be one later when he returns on the earth, is beyond me. It's beyond me how, that, how they can see that. This is clearly false in light of Hebrews 8.5. Jesus could never be a priest on the earth physically in any way. And if he could not be a priest, then he could not be a king on the earth either. But you see, Christ's priesthood and kingship were all revealed at a different time. He fulfilled this part to the house of Israel. His coming in glory would be revealed to that full world at 70 A.D., that's when he would come in his glory and he would show, okay, he has now completed everything and the result of that would be a new Jerusalem. Now, a new Jerusalem is not the old one all scrubbed up and all the bricks put back together with cement and mortar and all that stuff. That's not the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is clearly articulated in the New Testament as being from heaven. That's where the new Jerusalem comes down from. It's not a physical place, all right? And... Uh, you know, with, and the completed new temple would be there too, which would come down into a new heaven to a new spiritually regenerated earth. Regenerated earth. And that's why Revelation 21.1.4 says, a cry will go forth, the tabernacle of God is with man. That's how we see it now. So the first birth of Jesus had limiting factors. It seems undoubtable that Jesus was not recognized by his own. They didn't know him. John says he came into his own and they knew him not. Several times, stay with me, Jesus warned his audience. He even warned demons. Have you, when you read this in scripture, I've always wondered, why does he keep doing that? He warned them, don't tell anybody who I am. Yeah, you would think he would say, tell everybody. But he tells them constantly, don't reveal, even demons, don't go and say who I am. Keep your mouth shut. Why do we suppose this was? Because there were two aspects to the work of the Messiah, one hidden and one that would be revealed. He was hidden when he came in the flesh, then there was one that would be revealed. 
Bible scholar Edersheim says that even among the Jews, there was an expectation that the identity of the Messiah would be obscured. The Jews themselves sometimes wondered, are we going to even know who he is? How widely obscure is unknown. They thought that they, but we know that the Jews thought that they knew who the Messiah would be. And, and, but in fact, they didn't understand God's plan at all of what he was doing over here. They didn't get it whatsoever. The reality is driven home in Luke 24. Two disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking with each other. Jesus has been killed. And they say to each other, we thought it was he that was to redeem Israel. Jesus is there with them. We thought the guy who died back there in Jerusalem was the one who would redeem Israel, they say. They had no, absolutely no idea that he had. You see, that's how obscure the Messiah and his identity to them would be. And when Jesus said, don't tell anybody that what I've done or that I'm here or whatever it was, it was to keep it obscure because they were to kill him. They were to take him out for a very important reason. Listen, like modern dispensationalists and futurists of our day who claim that the cross somehow stopped the plan for Christ to reign on earth as king and priest and therefore claim that he needs to return so all these things can be accomplished, the Jews missed the purpose of Christ and the cross too. They missed the purpose of his death too. N.T. Wright and other scholars recognize that what Jesus did was not what the Jews expected. Nevertheless, he did exactly what God had planned all along. Wright says, one of the central tensions in Paul's thought, giving it again and again its creative edge, is the clash between the fact that God always intended what has in fact happened and the fact that not even the most devout Israelite had dreamed that it would happen like this. Okay? I'm trying to just restructure so you can start to get how we're going to get to this point. Another commentator, Key, says, commenting on Acts 3.9, Neither the Jewish nor the Roman leaders were aware of the divine plan and its cosmic consequences that their humanly despicable plot to destroy Jesus would achieve. Okay? So Jesus' humble physical birth, what did Isaiah say about Jesus? He said he would, be, he would not break a bruised reed, nor extinguish a smoking flax. Do you know how that describes this Messiah? We read him and we think that he's really out there. He didn't raise his voice in public. He didn't scream from the rooftops. And Isaiah says, he's not going to bruise a reed. He's not going to be boldly going through and wake, shaking everything up and knocking things over and, and, and blowing out smoking flaxes. He's going to be gentle and he's going to be here and he's going to be a lamb to the slaughter and he's going to come and they're not going to know him and they're going to kill him. Enacting exactly what God plans next. So Jesus' first birth by purpose and prophecy had certain limitations on the Lord. We know they had certain limitations on the Lord. Uh, Dale, Lloyd Dale says, just as our first birth places limitations on us. Okay, stay with me now. These limitations in his flesh would lead inexorably to the full revelation of the Messiah to come. This was purposeful, but it was all pointing to the full revelation. This full revelation was completed when Jesus could then reign, would then reign, as a king and a priest from heaven where everything is and has been based ever since. The idea of a futuristic reign 
uh, and return of Jesus is against all the evidence of Scripture of his own apostles who said he's coming back. The time is at hand now. It is here. It's now upon us. John, Peter, uh, Paul, uh, writer of Hebrews, James, all said the time is here. What? For his full revelation to come and show in his glory who he really was and who was put to death. And what would happen when this full revelation would come? He would inaugurate a new Jerusalem. He would inaugurate a new earth, a new heaven, a new way. And so after fulfilling the law and the prophets, living by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, which was in him, suffering for sin, actually becoming sin for us, healing us by his stripes, offering his sinless life up for the sins of the world, Jesus, the human being, was regenerated. He was reborn. He was transformed from earth man to heavenly king and priest. He was regenerated as a man to be able to enter into heaven. Now, let me prove it. He was born again into a realm, a sphere, where he could fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that describe him as ruling and reigning. Again, at his resurrection, Jesus was allowed or to be taken into the heavenly realm, the first person. His second birth or regeneration, this is so important, no more enabled him to become an earthly king. His resurrection no more enabled him to become an earthly king and priest any more than his physical birth enabled him to reign in heaven. Do you get that? His physical birth did not allow him to reign in heaven, and no more did his spiritual regeneration allow him to come back and reign on earth. He had to be regenerated prior to going in heaven. The only way for him to reign on earth, the only way for him to come to earth was to be denigrated and degenerated. He came from the Father and he came down and he took on the flesh submitting below all things. He had to lose ground. He, when he, to go back up, he had to gain that ground back. And that ground was when he was glorified. When was he glorified? When he was resurrected. That's at the point of his uh, regeneration. So this is how Paul describes the place where Jesus reigns. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Heavenly kingdom. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, uh, 10 through 11, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election made sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's a spiritual place. Now, cap it all off and to give you what you've been waiting for in Acts 13 27 Paul preached about Jesus and his resurrection in that resurrection the apostle said quote God has fulfilled this for us their children in that he ra has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son this day I have begotten you. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. And he ties that to the resurrection of Christ. Take note that the father speaking of the son's resurrection says, This day I have begotten you. 
The resurrection of Jesus that day he was begotten was his second birth, his regeneration to enter into his throne. In Romans, uh, this is such a great passage, 1, 3 through 4, Paul contrasts the two births. And he says this, He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Got that? He says, and, and then he says, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Did you hear those? Two births are described there. He says he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So we can see that in both places, he had new birth by the resurrection. He was first the son of God in the flesh, born of the seed of David, and then he was declared to be the son of God with power. Now, now to reign, that's what priests have and that's what kings have, with power according to the spiritual holiness by, by, by the resurrection of the dead. Okay? As the son of God with power, he's now able to reign over the spiritual kingdom as king and priest from heaven. We also know from Hebrews that when Christ entered into the heavens, that he became our high priest. That's when he became our high priest. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. He entered uh, once and for all into the Holy of Holies, right? That's when his high priesthood began. That's when his kingship began to reign. Hebrews 5.5 says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That passage is used again. Connection to him becoming a high priest. Hebrews 5.5 says when Christ was on the earth, he didn't glorify himself to be made a high priest. And then the writer adds, but that he said unto him, thou art my son today, I have begotten thee, and made him a high priest in the heavens. So again, in the day that God said unto Jesus, thou art my son today, I have begotten you, he was made a high priest. When was that day? Paul says in Acts, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised Jesus up as it is also written in the second song, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. So what are we to make of all this and how does it or how should it affect our lives as it applies to us today? Uh, Jesus is our model. He's the example. You hear that as a Mormon. You hear it as a Christian. He's the first fruits of everything from the grave. He's the first fruits of all things. But as such, the LDS claim that he came and did what all humans who seek to follow him will do, must do. You know, he's our brother, he's our example. The implication of this in LDS circles is that all people must accept Jesus here, do their best to follow him, repent when they have sinned, and then hope like hell that God will redeem and exalt them after this life. They try to take the same picture of Christ and say it's only at our resurrection that we truly become uh, enabled to enter into the realm of God. I remember reading Hubie Brown's uh, autobiography. He's an LDS uh, ex-apostle. He's now dead. And he said that he was walking by uh, J. Reuben Clark's house, who's a noted LDS uh, uh, man, J. Reuben Clark Law School at BYU. And Brown said that, that J. Reuben Clark was weeping. He was an old man now, and he was on his porch just weeping and weeping. And, and Hubie Brown says, what's wrong, uh, J. Reuben? What's wrong? And he said, through his tears, I just hope I've done enough. I just hope I've done enough. 
This was an LDS man who probably did 99% more than most LDS people, and he's weeping, hoping he'd done enough. The unfortunate thing here, parallel, is not with the LDS alone. There are people who understand the Bible really well, and they notice that Jesus' regeneration was at his resurrection. And so what they do is they go so far as to say, we aren't regenerated here. We are regenerated at resurrection just like Christ was. Therefore, their support for this claim is that we wouldn't sin if we were truly regenerated. That's what they say. And since we all continue to sin, they say rebirth is an impossibility in this life, and therefore all of us are waiting to be regenerated at our resurrection. Therefore, um, if you think about the implications of this, especially in the face of what most evangelicals teach, you've been born again, everything's great and good. If you take this wrong, all of us Christians who buy into that are going to wind up on our porches like J. Reuben Clark, praying that we've done enough to merit the resurrection that God has waiting for us. I'm bring, I've brought all of this out to kind of show you how what the LDS teach and say about this is not far afield at all from some Christians who understand when Jesus had his second birth, they apply it to us errantly, and they ignore the fact that we are regenerated here, but it's a processional thing, and next week we're going to explain what that process is and so we'll stop there with the comments. We have James in Brentwood, California. We have Charlie in West Valley. We have two off-air questions. But right now, take a look at this spot, and we'll come back. Baptism primarily is an identification. And the moment that you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of believers. Now, water can't do that for you. Only the Holy Spirit can put you into the body of believers. Therefore, every Christian, the moment he's trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit regenerates him, and he indwells him, and he seals him, and he also baptizes him. Okay. All right, we got an off-air question before we go to the phone calls. It's a great question. Why can't Jesus be a king if he isn't a priest? I understand that he can't be a priest, but I don't understand why he couldn't be a king on this earth. Okay, Zachariah said that he would be a king and a priest, right? Now, we know he can't be a priest because he wasn't of the right tribe. He was a Judah and he wasn't a Levite. So he must be a priest in some other way. What way is that? Well, there was a type or a foreshadowing or a model of the type of king and priest he would be given to us in the Old Testament. What was it of? This guy named Melchizedek. That was a priesthood that Jesus would have to both be a king and a priest in another place. Melchizedek is the type that Jesus would adapt. That's how he would become a high priest. But it was through a different person, a different line 
this type or shadow or figure, or maybe even real person, Melchizedek. So how is Melchizedek described in Hebrews? It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. So there's the tie. Melchizedek was a king, priest of the Most High God. So, And it goes on and talks about how Abraham paid tithes to uh, Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. So Jesus would never be a priest through the Levitical line because he wasn't a Levite. But as a Jew and as the Messiah, he would fulfill the type and picture that Melchizedek was, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Now, interesting, Salem was means what? Peace. So he would be a king of peace, and he would also be a priest of priests, like Melchizedek was. That's why if Jesus is to be a priest, it would be after Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was also a king, this would fulfill Zechariah's uh, prophecy of him. I hope that makes sense. It's not easy stuff to suddenly grasp, but uh, keep going. It'll come to you. And if it doesn't, if you disagree, you know, we're brothers and sisters. We can love each other and go on. All right, let's go to James in Brentwood, California. James, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello. Hello, brother James. Um, hey, thanks for all the work you guys, you and your staff do. And uh, uh, I know you love the Mormon people and you want to bring them all to heaven with the rest of us. I appreciate all your work. Um, I want to ask you a question. My friend who is a Mormon bishop, I'm uh, a, just a normal Christian guy reading the Bible, but he's a Mormon bishop. And the other day I was telling him about how I have the Holy Spirit, and I gave him a list of reasons why I believe I have the Holy Spirit. And he hits me with this weird thing I've never heard of. He says, well, you have the Holy Spirit, but you don't have the gift, gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, goodness. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm just wondering if you can explain, if you know, if I've, I've never seen in our Bible a distinction. I, I've never, to me, there's one Holy Spirit. To him, there's uh, two different grades, or, you know, there's uh, half strength and full strength, and that they only have access to, you know, of course, the, the Mormons seem to feel like they uh, can raise the veil back up and charge us all admission to get in. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you know anything about that, uh, yeah. I'll keep it brief, uh, you know, well, the difference, if, or, or do, uh, do you ever remember when you were involved in it, was there ever a distinction between Holy Spirit and a gift? And Anyway. Absolutely. James, what it is is uh, the LDS believe that there is a priesthood that's on this earth. They really discount and disavow Hebrews completely, but they believe there's a priesthood mm -hmm. on this earth. And so what they're really talking about is the apostolic power to bestow the Holy Spirit upon somebody which does happen in the book of Acts. It doesn't always happen. There are times when the Holy True. Spirit, but so they say that the gift of the Holy Spirit can only be had when someone by the laying on of hands who has the proper priesthood authority bestowed upon them by somebody who had the proper priesthood authority to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit like the apostles in the book of Acts would give others in those different uh, special times that we would actually read about. So that's what it ties to you. Now, you having the Holy Spirit to a Latter-day Saint is really what they call the light of Christ. And Scripture, biblically, does support that all of us are born with, that He is a light that came into this world. And so there is some biblical precedent that we all do have conscience and our awareness of some sort 
that he is that light. But nevertheless, that's how they distinguish. They say all people have the light of Christ, which enables them to choose right or wrong. But the gift of the Holy Spirit given to you by the laying on of hands by somebody with the proper priesthood authority, that's the coup de grace. That's the thing to get aimed yeah. for. Yeah. And I think, as, I think ultimately in our next conversation is what he's going to lead to it. And, you, you know, you don't have it. And, hey, look what I can do for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's yeah. it's uh, all right. Well, I, I appreciate you know because of you you know uh, over the years you know when I talk to this guy who I want saved and I don't believe he's saved, I, I it, you're now helping me almost predict what he's going to say next, which is pretty cool. Awesome, keep going, my brother. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that brings him around, and uh, our prayers are with you, James. Thank you. Have a good night. Okay. God bless. Bye bye. Let's go to uh, Gabe, Charlie in West Valley, and then we'll go to Gabe in Boise, Idaho. Charlie, West Valley, Utah. You're, Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, right. I uh, had the TV on. Hold on one second. Let me... Turn it down, Charles. Oh, I did. I just did. Thank you, Sean. Hey, um, okay. Wow, you really shook the olive tree tonight, buddy. <laughs> um, I got one question. What? Where does... You know, Mary was hovered, uh, she was uh, conceived by, with the Holy Spirit, okay? Mary? Where does, yeah, okay. So where would that play into Jesus' regeneration? Okay, wait, did you say Mary was conceived or Mary conceived? Wait, no. Yeah, Mary, you know, the Holy Spirit. Um, Overshadowed sorry. her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well, I would put it this way. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which overshadowed her, which represented yes. God. There, and that's also a strong point for there being one God. And it's also a strong point for, for the debate on the Trinity and the third person of the Holy Spirit being a third person. Because if that was the case, then Jesus would be the son of the Holy Spirit and not the son of yes. God. But nevertheless, getting back to the point, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and Jesus was born into this world, I would equate that birth no, very similar or exactly the same as when one of us received Christ by faith and are born again. He didn't have to be okay. born again that way. He was born the way we are when we're regenerated. Born of the, yeah, born of the flesh, of a woman born of the flesh, so that it, he could fulfill the law. Right. And he fulfilled all the law to the T. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I, th I think he didn't need to be regenerated spiritually in the sense that because he was born what we need to experience after our birth. Okay. Hope that makes sense. Hope that All makes right. sense, John. Well, this it's... was quite a bit to chew on, so. Yeah, I know. Keep going, my brother. Well, thank you. Love you. See ya. All right, we're going to Gabe. Gabe, Boise, Idaho. What's up? Hey, this is Sean. Gabe. Hey. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Hey, uh, I have a few thoughts. Yeah. I found your uh, thing. Um, I was kind of thinking, you know, along the lines of, I uh, hope I can articulate what I have to say to you. <laughs> um, as far as, you know, when we die, you were talking about we, we like, uh, have a judgment and we meet God again, basically. It's the, um, and I was thinking kind of about what you said about Jesus, um, that his, his, rebirth or being reborn um and he was telling thomas you know you must be born again and i 
said be kind of abstract, but I was thinking maybe he was talking about when we die, maybe it's our, we're reborn into okay. uh, into being with God, kind of like he was when he he was crucified and then went back to the Father, kind of when he told Mary, um, touch me not because I have not yet ascended to my Father. Maybe that was kind of a parallel of we have to go back to God before we're regenerated, maybe. You're not alone. You're not alone in that thought, Gabe. I know. I know yeah. two people who are great Christians who agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I that wasn't pre-thought about until tonight. I was listening to you, and those things kind of came to my mind. You know, when I was sitting there thinking, you know, listening to you. So. Yeah. But, well, that's a great thought, my brother. Yeah. So. Thanks um, for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. So. Okay. God bless you. Yeah. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Next week, we're going to show really quickly on a board diagram how uh, Jesus was, when he was born, he was, autom he was fully God. He, the Word made flesh. He didn't need spiritual regeneration to walk through this earth. And that we, when we are born again, so he is a step ahead of us. He's born that way. We need to be born again. But as we are born again, then we walk by the Spirit, and ultimately we are regenerated fully, completely, ultimately at our resurrection. And so the same thing happened with Christ. He was ultimately, because he became human, regenerated fully so that he could enter into heaven. And that is what it seems to say, because God says, this is today I have begotten you, and it refers to his resurrection. So we'll talk about that briefly next week. Got a few uh, emails to cover quickly. Uh, this is from Josh. He says, my life has changed. He says, thanks for the ministry. I was raised, born, raised, baptized LDS. Uh, then my parents divorced, and um, the journey has been pretty long and supremely frustrating. And he goes on and says, I finally gave myself to God last March, and God does change lives. And so we just want to congratulate you, and, and uh, it's always wonderful. Listen, um, this is from uh, someone who says, you guys are always saying that evangel evangelists and their institutions uh, there's no decent churches out there. I think you should look, and he gives us one. I'm not saying there's no decent churches out there. I think there's a lot of very decent churches, and I think there are a lot of very decent, godly pastors out there. Uh, but he says we should look at Dr. Arnold Murray and Shepherd's Chapel. And he says uh, he doesn't beg for money. He says this, he does that. And so I went on Matt Slick's site at CARM, and I read about Dr. Murray, who's now dead, by the way. So they're playing replays of him. And uh, it just goes on to say uh, a bunch of things about him and that uh, he denies the Trinity. He denies the existence of hell and the rapture. He states that Eve had sexual relations with the devil and that, the, that this union produced Cain. He preaches a pre-existence of human beings. And uh, all this being said, there's two points to be made here. I love Matt and Carm, but we all, like we were talking about doctrine earlier, we're going to err in doctrine somewhere. Matt, in my opinion, errs in doctrine some places. Could be wrong. He might be right on everything. But I think he's wrong in areas, and he thinks I'm wrong in areas. And Dr. Arnold Murray, I'm sure, was right in areas and wrong in areas too. We have to get past this. And it's going to be the clarion call that you hear from me for the rest of my life. We have to get past it. Because until we do, love will not abide. Doctrinal differences will divide us. 
and we aren't saved by doctrine. We don't die and get a theo theological exam. We are saved by grace, through faith, to love, as Christ. And so uh, I'm sure Dr. Murray loved the Lord. I'm sure, uh, by, from what I can read and see, he seems to have really shown uh, a love for the Lord. So give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure he has things to teach us. Go from there. This is an interesting, I think I have time. I'm going to try to knock it out. I have some other emails, but let me just, uh, two things. In a conversation with an atheist a few years ago, I asked him to prove that music exists. We see transcriptions of melody and rhythm. We can discern the effects of vibrations within the medium, but music exists only in the perception of those who hear and respond to it. For someone whose soul is not attuned to music, all that exists is unintelligible noise. And I, that's true. Have you ever had your parent call, that's just noise, and you think, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's because they're, they're not attuned to the, to the vibrations coming. This is what Will uh, Grigg says. I've also been fascinated by the idea of string theory, which resonates, as it were, with the ideas you discussed on the February 23rd program. On this construction, God is a musician, and the universe is a song, of his composition, the fall was the introduction of dissonance, sin and death, and Jesus' ministry is to bring all things back into harmony. Uh, I think it's a great parallel, brother uh, uh, Will, so excellent. Finally, Jimmy from Brisbane, it's a little bit of a letter, but I think it's important. He said that, you know, I was talking about how we read from a newsletter where an LDS leader of the church, um, Bishopric, printed the top 50 names of the largest contributors in the church in 1909 and he sent that out to all the contributors who were in the top 50 in the entire church of course he was the number one guy and we pointed that out in the thing uh, this is what uh, jimmy says from brisbane australia there are four major social groups in the church men's group women's choir youth and sunday school what they do at the end of every service the treasurer will stand up before the congregation and read out what the people contributed to their groups. Some people, like I was, are involved in more than one group. When I was 17, I was in the Sunday school group, so the class teacher would pass the plate, and you'd have to tell your teacher the amount you're putting there. Teacher records it, gives it to the treasurer. Then before church in the foyer, there are representatives from each of the other groups sitting at tables, and you'd have to report the groups that you're involved in to make donations to each group. Because I was 17 going on 18, I was encouraged to join the men's group. I was also in the choir. So I, on my parents and on my behalf, would make donations to each of my groups as well as my sister's group and their own groups. All these records are given to the treasurer to read out before the end of the service. Another thing is that when the treasurer is making their way up, every adult in the congregation is pulling out their own notepads to, join, to jot down what other people are donating. This is a guy who went to a Presbyterian church. This is what they did. He goes on and he says, it's unbelievable the, the, what happened as a result of that. People are then, at the end of the year, they tally everybody what they gave and they give prizes out to the top, to the top.